congratulations, you've made it to the end of Judges. Some of you are weeping and mourning. Others, are, others of you are rejoicing on the inside today. So we have arrived at the end of the book of Judges. Judges 21 is where we're going to be this morning. But I do want to give you a little bit of a heads up about what is coming next. Beginning next Sunday, September 25th, leading all the way up to Christmas time, we'll be doing a deep dive into the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6. So that's what we're going to be studying over the next few months together, taking it verse by verse, an in-depth dive into the Lord's Prayer. So I hope you'll join us next week as we begin that study. But before we do that, we must conclude with the story of Judges. Without a doubt, chapters 19 through 21, which comprise the fourth and final section of Judges, are probably some of the most disturbing passages of Scripture that you've ever read. And it is a prime example of what happens when humanity does what is right according to their own eyes. So in chapter 19, which we studied two weeks ago, many of you are still shell-shocked from it, the story of the Levite and the concubine, when she was seized by the worthless men of Gibeah, and then the Levite chops her up into pieces, sends her throughout Israel as a declaration of war. Last week... We looked at what did Israel do as a response to this horrible act that the men of Gibeah performed. And then today, as we conclude in Judges chapter 21, we're actually going to see the consequences of Israel for their retribution about what they did with the Levite and the concubine. So as we work our way through this final chapter of Judges today, I want you to notice Three observations from the text. Number one, we see a hasty oath. Number two, a sinful loophole. And then number three, a foreign Israel. So a hasty oath, a sinful loophole, and a foreign Israel. As we begin in this passage, remember that a hasty oath has been made. But in order to understand what that is, you actually have to go back into Judges chapter 20 and remember that after the concubine was shipped out to all of the tribes of Israel, Israel gathered at a place called Mizpah to decide what are we going to do about this atrocity. And after hearing the horrible story of what the Levites shared with the nation of Israel, they made an oath there that none of their daughters would marry the men of Benjamin. But this oath was not really thought through very well. Look at verses 2 to 4 from Judges chapter 21. Here's what the text tells us. The people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. That would be the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 4. And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now Israel is now mourning the fact that because at the end of Judges 20, they went in and slaughtered all of the tribe of Benjamin, they're now mourning 
that this had happened. They're lamenting to God that this tragedy happened. But in reality, this is quite ironic because they were the ones who developed and made this oath to the Lord to go and ensure that the tribe of Benjamin would no longer be a part of Israel and that none of their daughters would in fact marry the men of Benjamin. This whole situation came about ultimately because Israel, throughout the book of Judges, only consults God when they want to. He is merely a supporting actor in the book of Judges. Yahweh is not the main character. You know who the main character is? It's, Yah, it's Israel themselves consulting God whenever they want to, but for the most part doing whatever is right according to their own eyes. This whole situation came about because of sin. The Levite never consults Yahweh before grabbing his concubine and throwing her out to the men of Gibeah. He never consults Yahweh before chopping her up into 12 pieces and mailing her out throughout the tribes of Israel. In addition, it was the remaining tribes of Israel at the end of Judges 20 that made the decision and this oath to not marry or to not give their daughters in marriage to men of Benjamin. So none of these decisions have been made according to Yahweh. They're just decisions, hasty oaths that the nation of Israel has made before the Lord. God never gives them an answer on how they are to proceed, except for when they finally do ask him in Judges 20 what should be done. And it takes them three times to essentially make sure that they're doing what Yahweh desired for them to do. He remains silent throughout this final section. And we see amidst his silence the massive corruption of the nation of Israel. They have quite the dilemma on their hands now as we approach Judges 21. What is that dilemma? Well, if you remember, at the end of Judges 20, 600 men of Benjamin escaped the slaughter. And they went and they hid in this cave. Well, because they're still alive, unless Israel comes up with a solution, these 600 men will die without wives, without families, and there will cease to be the 12 tribes of Israel. There will only be 11. And in hindsight, Israel now realizes this is not a good idea. We should have thought this through before we slaughtered all of our brothers at the end of Judges 20. They had wiped out all of the Benjaminites. And they were also the ones who made this oath that none of their daughters would marry men of Benjamin. Perhaps you in your life have made a decision in haste. Perhaps you've made a hasty oath before, only to realize that after you made it, it was not such a good idea. Hypothetically, like when I maybe told my wife, all right, we're on a spending freeze now. I don't get paid till next Friday. No more spending. And then I realized, oh, wait, I want to go to Tuscaloosa for the game. So hypothetically, that means two hypothetical tanks of gas and food while there. So never mind about that spending freeze. We can, we can find a way to make this work, right? We all make decisions in haste, not thinking through the full ramifications of what it means. That's exactly what Israel did with this oath that they made in Judges 20. 
They made it without thinking through the implications of it. Yes, on paper, it sounded good that none of their daughters would marry these wicked men of the tribe of Benjamin who were responsible for what happened to this concubine. But now, unless these 600 men that escaped have wives, there'll be one less tribe in Israel. And when they sit down and they think about the consequences, they realize we do not want this to happen. Now, what's ironic is throughout the book of Judges, Israel is never really concerned about giving their daughters away in marriage to foreign nations or their men marrying foreign wives, but they make the decision on their own that their own daughters will not marry someone within one of their own tribes. Is that not the epitome of irony? That the whole reason the book of Judges exists is because the Israelites did not conquer and inhabit all of the lands that Joshua had taken over. And now, instead of their daughters marrying those within the tribe of Israel... They go out and they marry people outside of the tribes of Israel. Yet another example in Judges 21 especially of how sin has distorted the truth. But number two, we also see in this passage a sinful loophole. Now in addition to the oath that these Israelites made not to allow their daughters to marry the men of Benjamin, they made another oath. And this oath is referenced in verse 5. Here's what it said. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. Now it's not clear in the text what type of oath Israel made. There's some debate. Was it the type of oath referenced in Deuteronomy 27 and Leviticus 20, which had to do with punishment for sexual crimes, which would be fitting based on what happened to the Levite's concubine? Or it could have been a type of curse that was first initiated in the book of Numbers 21, verses 2 and 3, for devoting cities to destruction. That could be applied here as well. But here's what Israel realizes. They had found a problem. How are these 600 men going to find wives? So they come up with a loophole. On their own, without consulting God, they have determined a way for these 600 remaining men of Benjamin to have wives. And here is the loophole. Look at verses 8 through 12. And they said, What one is there of the tribe of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah and behold no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly for when the people were mustered behold not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there so the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found 
among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Here's the loophole. They went and they found the one tribe that did not gather at Mizbah. And they decided, here is where we can find wives for the men of Benjamin. Go into the city. Destroy all of the city except the virgins in that city. Now, what's the problem with this? Well, if you go back into the book of Deuteronomy, there's actually clear instructions about how Israel is to perform a holy war against another nation. Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 11. Let me just read one verse out of there. Deuteronomy 7, verse 2. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Now the problem with Deuteronomy 7 is this is how they were supposed to apply the holy war to opposing nations like the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Philistines. This Deuteronomy 7 passage was not supposed to be applied to the people of Israel. But nevertheless, because Israel is doing whatever is right according to their own eyes, they take that Deuteronomy 7 passage and they overlay it against the people of Jabesh-Gilead. So they wrongly apply that text and they say, let's go in and let's have a holy war against the people of Jabesh-Gilead, but save their 400 virgins. Because these ladies would be excellent wives for the remaining 600 Benjaminites that fled at the end of Judges 20. So the Israelites send a group of men to slaughter the entire town. Men, women, children. But here's the deal. There is no stipulation, according to the Deuteronomy 7 passage, that you should save all young virgins. So not only are they wrongly applying the text to within the nation of Israel, they're also making up their own stipulation. The text in Deuteronomy 7 does not say, save all of the virgins. So they're trying to stay faithful to some religious vow that they essentially created themselves. This is a prime example of religious ritual taking precedence over a pure and sincere heart. Israel is not concerned about the people of Jabesh-Gilead at all. They're not concerned about the Deuteronomy 7 passage. They simply take it, apply it out of context, make up an additional stipulation, also that the men of Benjamin can have wives. In the Deep South, we're very familiar with this type of scenario where religious ritual takes precedence over a sincere heart change. If you've ever heard the phrase before, I don't really need church because it's about my personal relationship with Jesus. That's not biblical, number one. 
And number two, it's some made-up religious ritual that people make to, fill them, to make themselves feel better about not gathering with a corporate body. Or maybe you've talked to someone, you asked them to share with you their story of how they came to faith in Christ, how they were converted, and their answers begin with things like, well, I've been raised in church all of my life, or I was baptized at the age of seven. Even though conversion is not about church attendance, nor is it about baptism. It's about the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts. And as a response, we worship with God's people. And as a response, we publicly profess Christ through baptism. Israel was guilty of not only not knowing what God's Word said about these apparent vows that they're making but also thinking that as long as we perform these vows, God will be pleased with us. So these 400 virgins from the territory of Jabesh-Gilead are brought to the men of Benjamin. But we have a problem. And if you know simple math, you know what the problem is. We said there's 600 men of Benjamin So there's only 400 young virgins that they can take from this territory. 600 minus 400 is, don't be afraid, 200. So what are we going to do? Well, there's another loophole that Israel has to create in order to come up with the remaining 200. Look at verses 19 to 23. So they said, behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north Of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us. Because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns, and lived in them. Another loophole has been created. 200 wives still needed to be found. So the Israelites say, let's go to this festival, this Daughters of Shiloh festival. Now in Deuteronomy 16, the three Jewish festivals that all Israelite men were to report to were Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Even though it says clearly in Deuteronomy 16 that all men must report to these, very likely women and children would have been allowed to come as well. But this is not, more than likely, one of these official feasts. In fact, many think it's some sort of corrupt version of the Feast of Weeks. So we arrive here and we realize that Israel is going to go in and take these women against their will. 
this is a major problem. The plan is that when these women come out to dance at this basically made-up festival, the men of Benjamin will lie in ambush. When they come out, they will take them against their will, marry them, and those make up the remaining 200 wives of the men of Benjamin. What a fairy tale story. What every woman wants to be snatched from the fields and forced to marry a man against their will. What a honeymoon that will be. This is what the Israelites come up with. Think for a moment about this final section of Judges that we looked at. Judges 19 through 21. This all began in Judges 19 when these worthless men of Gibeah seize the Levite's concubine, violate her, abuse her, leave her on the front porch, and then from there the Levite chops her up, sends her out throughout Israel. This whole section that we have been studying all started with men within the tribe of Benjamin seizing against her will a Levite's concubine and doing with her whatever they please. So now, Israel has the bright idea, let's do the same thing. To ensure that these 200 men who do not have a wife will be given a wife. Now at this point, as we conclude the book of Judges, it's okay for you to just throw up your hands and say, God, you are sovereign over your creation. These stories are challenging. I don't understand them But we know that your purposes are far greater than anything we can comprehend. Because when you get to the end of Judges 21, that's about all you can do. Is throw up your hands and praise God for being the sovereign God over all of his creation. Because nothing about what the people of Israel do here makes sense. Based on what we just spent the last two weeks talking about. So they they take these women against their will. Now, how is Israel going to deal with the fathers of these young virgins? Because more than likely, these fathers were a part of the oath that said, we will not give our daughters to be the wives of these men of Benjamin. So Israel has to think this through. And they come up with a solution. Here's what they tell the fathers. Look, you're not willingly giving us your daughters. We're taking them. So you're off the hook. You're not willingly giving your daughters away. We will come, snatch them out of the fields, and if anybody tries to mess with you, just say they were stolen. What a brilliant idea, Israel says. And the fathers of these daughters of Shiloh go along with it. What's interesting is the word that is used in this passage, the word for snatch in Hebrew, It's only used two other times in the Old Testament. In Hebrews chapter 10, excuse me, not Hebrews, Psalm chapter 10, verse 9. And you know how that word is used in that passage? There's a comparison going on between the forceful seizure of an innocent person by a wicked and violent man to that of a lion prouncing upon its prey. And that is the Hebrew word for snatched used here in Judges 21. 
So these men of Benjamin, lying in ambush, come out as if they're lions, attack their prey, and take them back to their homeland. So the men of Benjamin are not lovingly and graciously wooing these women to become their wives. No, they're abducting them. Which is exactly how all of this mess started to begin with when a Levite's concubine was abducted by the worthless men of Gibeah. And verse 23 ends by telling us that they take these 200 virgins and they return home to their inheritance and they rebuild their towns and they live happily ever after, right? Wrong. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 13 through 19, which talks about how cities and areas that have been destroyed in a holy war are to be dealt with. That specific passage tells us this in Deuteronomy 13, verse 16. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. So, once again, the men of Benjamin are not doing what the scriptures talk about if you're going in and trying to declare a holy war against a people. These young virgins should not have been saved to be the wives of the men of Benjamin. Technically, they should have been destroyed. And as the book concludes, gratefully for some of you, sadly for others, we see a foreign Israel. What do I mean by that? Look at verses 24 and 25 as the book comes to its conclusion. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel goes home, they return to their inheritance, and they continue to act the same way that they've acted throughout the course of these 21 chapters. Now what's interesting is the ending of the book of Joshua and the ending of the book of Judges. If you go back to the end of the book of Joshua, we read this in verse 28. So Joshua sent the people away Every man to his inheritance. And then you drop down to verse 31. And it says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. And had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. But at the end of Judges. After we're told that the men of Israel go back to their inheritance. We're given in verse 25, the concluding comment in Judges. And that is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So as Joshua concludes, we have a whole generation of people that continued to follow Yahweh and obey him. 
When we arrive at the end of Judges, when Israel returns to their inheritance, we're told that they do whatever is right in their own eyes. By the time we come to the end of this book, what you need to understand is Israel is now Canaan. They have completely abandoned Yahweh. They have done what is right in their own eyes. If you were to simply look at them, there would be almost nothing that would tell you that they are the holy, set-apart, chosen people of God. Instead of conquering the land and inhabiting the land as Joshua, through Yahweh, told the Israelites to do, they conquered the land and they allowed these foreign nations to continue to take up residency alongside of Israel. And as they did that, Israel became more and more like Canaan. To whereas you get to the end of this book, and the text tells us they're doing whatever is right according to their own eyes. Even if you were to isolate Judges 21... From the rest of the book, you see clear violations of oaths that were originally designed for different purposes, but that Israel used to do whatever was right according to their own eyes. They found loopholes so that the men of Benjamin would have 600 wives to ensure that that tribe would continue to be a part of Israel. They slaughtered men, women, and children, but they saved 200 virgins in one place and 400 virgins in the next. And they'd made all of these decisions on their own. They were not consulting Yahweh. The one big takeaway from this book is this. The problem is not the Canaanites, The problem is Israel itself. One commentator says it like this. It is not the enemies outside who threaten the soul, but the Canaanite within. At the end of the day, Israel is doing what is right according to their own eyes because they made this decision to not remain faithful to the covenant that God made with his holy people. How many times when we go back and we meditate on the book of Judges do we realize that there were all of these passages in the Pentateuch that gave Israel specific instructions for how they were to behave. And Israel either ignored it altogether or they created their own loopholes to ensure that it would work out to their advantage. But here's the beauty of the book of Judges. In spite of blunder after blunder after blunder of Israelite decision making, Yahweh never stops being God to his people. And you know why? Because in spite of our massive inability to be faithful to our Lord, The God that we serve is faithful to his covenant, to his people all of the time. Always he is faithful to his covenant. Israel will always be his people throughout the Old Testament. Even when they're cast into exile later on in the history of Israel, God remains 
faithful to his people. And if you are in Christ today, brothers and sisters, you will always be in Christ. If you have repented of your sin and you have believed in faith, in the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord, you will always be in Christ unless you apostatize from the faith. But if you're not in Christ today and you've never repented of your sin or believed in faith in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I hope that you leave here today seeing based on this book, that there is no sin that God will not forgive. There is no sin that would ever make him decide that he no longer wants to be your God. The book of Judges proves it. If I was Yahweh, I'd have left these people chapters ago. But praise God, we're not Yahweh. And he is patient and steadfast with us in spite of our sin. It's not an excuse to sin, Paul tells us. We don't continue to sin so that we can abuse grace. That's not what this is saying. But no matter how often we fall down, if we repent and we get back up, and we walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh, as Romans 8 tells us, God is faithful to his people 